0: that. Canthea. Hi, right, welcome to the other side of midnight. Um your host tonight's gonna to be Canthea. But your engineer, me, uh Keith Morgan, seemed to have messed up the opening. So oh,
1: well I'm here <laughs>
0: okay.
1: I was a little confused by that. Hi, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to the other (laughs) side of midnight. Our special guest tonight is our own sound engineer, Keith Morgan, and he's going to regale us with stories of personal encounters of a third kind. Uh, No one can replace Richard. Richard has seen more rain in the last few days than anyone can imagine. Uh, The phone has been out. The power's been on and off. There's trucks out there trying to restore things. So, we decided to give you a show anyway. So, here we are, and I'm really uh, happy to introduce Keith. Keith is an amazing uh, individual. He's been in the background of everything because he's been handling our sound for us. But what you may not know is that he also has um, a really broad experience in electronics. He uh, graduated... Um, I'm sorry. He worked as a technician with ABC News in Washington, D.C. since 1982. He has a B.A. in communications with Howard University with a minor in computer science. He helped build Howard University's TV station, WHMM, now WHUT. He worked at K. Uh, he worked at WRC Channel 4 in Washington in 1980. Keith also is the discoverer of what has been called the Morgan Curve on Mars. He has researched the Mars anomalies since 1988 after purchasing the Monuments of Mars. Good old Richard. <laughs> Once again, strikes. <laughs> he worked with Nightline with Ted Koppel. Keith is an in Keith was instrumental in getting a face-to-face between Richard Hoagland and Ted Koppel. He also supplied the show with information which was used in various shows about Mars and Europa. He now knows why the face on Mars, who is the face on Mars, and why it's buried there based on Sumerian writings of over 6,000 years ago. So Keith,
2: <laughs>
1: Keith has lined up a real show here, and in fact, I'm still putting up images. He is so excited to share with you the volumes of information, and you know, he's a great storyteller. I love to listen to Keith, and there's a personal touch about everything that he does. So welcome, Keith, to the show, to the other side of Midnight.
0: Thank you, Cynthia. Uh, (laughs) Even though I'm always used to being behind the scenes and pushing the buttons or fixing the equipment, uh, tonight I'm going to share some personal stuff with the audience. Uh, The ones that do know me know that uh, I go back to 1988 when uh, Richard was uh, invited out to Goddard Space Flight Center to speak to the scientists and engineers. And... I had gotten an ABC uh, producer to assign a camera crew to that event. But lo and behold, I'm sitting out at Goddard waiting for my camera crew to show up. And there's no media there, but the auditorium is packed. And that's when Dr. Carlotto gave me the orthographically correct photo, which I used to discover the Morgan curve on Mars by accident because I tried to tell uh Burke, Murphy, and Arledge, the Vice President and Vice President and head of ABC News, that we were diverted away from something that should have been of real important importance because um, these guys had a lot to say about what was actually sitting on the face of Mars. And that's when I took that orthographic correct photo Dr. Carlotto gave me, put it in a copy machine. The copy came out black and white because... Yours truly did not switch it over to photograph. So it just did black and white. And that's when I noticed the little white mounds that were jutting out that didn't stand out in the multiple gray photo and played connected dots. I get one third to almost a half a circle. And then I realized, okay, that's kind of unusual. And they start out from around this big pyramidal structure but then I started to measure the spacing between them, and I found out they're spaced exponentially, except the fifth mound didn't fit that exponential spacing, and I couldn't figure out why. But if I skipped it, went to the sixth one, it was perfectly double the distance between the third and the fourth. And then I noticed if I drew a line from the sixth one through the fourth one and kept going with equal distance, I came to the center of another one. So I had a ray across a curve. It was basic high school geometry. Earl Thorne then looked at it. And that's when Hoagland called me and said, you need to talk to Earl. And I said, why? He said, because you found something. And I talked to Earl, and he said that he was looking at this over the weekend, and he tried the logarithmic function of E. E is 2.67 something, something, something that is reciprocating like pi. And it shows up again and again throughout the Sedonia complex. But he said he took his graph, he laid it down over the area, and everything fell into place. Not only the curve was there, but the x and y-axis were also there plotted in these mounds. And that fifth mound that I couldn't figure out why it didn't fit the exponential spacing was because it was part of the y-axis. And at that moment, I knew that this was not a joke, it was not somebody's imagination, that the stuff sitting on the surface of Mars, including that face, are totally 100% artificial. Somebody made them because there's no way in heck Earl Torrin could have found the X and Y axis after I'd found the majority of the mounds. And he just takes a graph, lays it down over the area, and boom, everything falls into place. I can now take that same grouping of the X and Y and all the little circles I drop on the mounds, and I can resize it, and it fits over The Mars Odyssey image, it fits over the European Space Agency image of Cydonia. And you just can't do that if this is supposed to be natural. And it's a simple high school geometry. So tonight, what I'm going to talk about is I'm going to talk about my encounters, things that I experienced firsthand. And I'm going to tell you about what got me down this road looking at this in the first place. And hopefully I'll have all the pictures up by the time I get to the point where we're going to start looking at really looking at pictures. In in 1973, I was bused in the middle of my junior year from Northwestern High School to High Point High School. when I was at Northwestern, uh, we had just finished the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, my marching band, and we, had, we were honor band. We brought Santa Claus in. I was feeling on top of the world till they came to me and said, well, we're going to bust you out to High Point in Beltsville. And I'm like, okay. So I had to pack up all my stuff and go to High Point High School. I was gonna graduate early in my junior year because i had finished my curriculum for Northwestern with a B-plus average. I was doing great. But then I got bust to High Point. I became the drum major for High Point's marching band. And in 1973, we were finishing up band practice and it was the fall. It was dark by that time. I was waiting for my father to pick me up, and one of the other band members was waiting with me, and I remember his name to this day. His name was Adite Chewy Chewakui. and we called him Chewy, and that was before Star Wars came out, so it was just a coincidence. And we're sitting outside the band room door. I'm sitting on the stairs. He's standing up behind me, and we're facing towards D.C., now High Point was called High Point for a good reason because from that high up, you can see from the second floor, you can see the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in DC. And Beltsville is a long ways away from DC, but you could still see it. And I was sitting there, had nothing on my mind, just wondering when my father was gonna get there. And out of the corner of my eye, I see this light moving parallel to the horizon and it is covering blocks really quickly and i said to the guy waiting with me i said hey look at this plane this guy's got his foot in the tank and before i could finish the word tank this thing made a 90 degree turn straight up cut back at a 45 going in the opposite direction it was going cut back at another 45 degree angle in back in the direction it was going and it was moving so fast that the retention of vision i could see the angles on this thing perfectly I was now standing up going, what the heck am I looking at? And Chewie said, and, you know, I live over there, and every now and then we see that, and we don't know what it is. That's what got my curiosity going. When my father came and picked me up, I told him about it, and he said, yeah, when I was a pilot, uh, I used to see spots in front of my eyes. And I said, the other guy saw the spots too? Exact same thing I was looking at? Anyway, that did not make logical sense to me. But that sighting really started to open my mind to what was going on because I knew about inertia. I knew you can't make turns like that without killing the pilot. I used to make little model gas airplanes, fly them on a tethered string, and I knew there was an aerodynamics to flight as far as we knew. Anyway... In uh, was it 1987, um, Phil Class, Danton Friedman, were on Nightline. And if you go to the other side of midnight.com, and you click on tonight's show, and you scroll down so you see my uh, images. The first image is not really an image, it's a video. And it's actually that nightline show where Stanton Friedman and Stanton uh, Stan Friedman and Phil Klass uh, butt heads together, talking about UFOs. Now I would really like to know what TED's opinion is of UFOs or UAPs, as we call them, at this point in time. And Rich actually asked me to see if I could get TED to be on the show. And Ted wrote back that he has fond memories of me, and, uh, but he said I used to drive him crazy talking about Hoagland. So, um, but he said that uh, he, he wouldn't, wouldn't be able to do the show. Now, he might change his mind if I ask him would he do it if I hosted the show uh, along with Conthea and see if uh, he'd be willing to do that. Ted actually gave me the opportunity to do two shows. One was on the Phoenix Lights, and the other one was on Project Disclosure. And both of those got upstaged by other events, which then focused the media's attention away from those events. But the things that happened, um, uh, I'll talk about those when I get further down into the, the stories, but... A lot of the stuff that did come out when those events took place gave me more insight into what was really going on out here. Anyway, uh, when you watch that video, uh, Stanton Friedman makes a thing about uh, somebody on the Majestic 12 um, committee had... uh, he was a skeptic or something i think he meant the condon report not the majestic 12 but i think that was just a slip of the tongue or um he didn't get that quite right unless there was something else going on majestic 12 that he didn't talk about but i don't think that was it um uh image two and three are is ted koppel sam Donaldson, and i forget my other co-workers name and uh, image three is me and Ted together. And I talked to Sam Donaldson about this stuff, but that Sam Donaldson said, oh, I don't believe that stuff. I don't believe that stuff. Weird thing is is that Sam Donaldson, when uh, Contact came out, the movie Contact came out, we were doing our uh, end of year show just before the new year was coming in, and Sam said, yeah, I think next year we're going to have contact, just like on that movie Contact. And I'm like, I thought he told me he didn't believe in this stuff. So that made me wonder what made him change his mind, but that was Sam. Anyway, um, when Nightline did the show with Phil Class and Stanton Friedman. Um, I walked downstairs after the show and talked to Ted in the hall because Ted had asked Stanton Friedman about uh, give me something substantial that you know we can touch, we can deal with, and talk about that gives credence or more prominence to this encounter, these encounters because most people come back, they don't have anything physical. And Stanton went on about, he asked the wrong question, is this that and the other, and you'll see how it goes. But the thing was is that I told Ted in the hall, I said, Ted, he should have told you about Betty Hill. She had drawn a star map that she had seen on the craft. And they couldn't find a couple of the stars that were in this star map that she came up with and <clears throat> i said a few years later or maybe two decades later they they discovered the two stars and they fit perfectly in the star map and this other lady looked at it from reverse angle and said that these guys based on how this thing was drawn and their Star routes that they were taking and so forth. You were looking at our solar system from their solar system, which was Zeta Reticuli 1 and Zeta Reticuli 2, which are two stars that are in a binary star system. And he said, why didn't he say that? And I said, I have no idea. But then Phil Class came out of the studio and he's walking towards us and he's walking towards us. I stopped him and I said, I tell him my story in high school and how the light made the turns and everything. And he looked at me and said, you saw a spaceship from Alpha Centauri. And that's when my dandruff got up and I said, okay, I'm going to either prove him right or I'm going to prove him wrong. And that's when I started my research deeply into this whole thing because before I was just more kind of looking at things, seeing how things were, and trying to get an understanding of um, what was going on. And I didn't really put a lot of emphasis into it. But then uh, ABC sent me out to California, to San Jose, to a Sony camera training class, along with one of my coworkers, Craig Stevens. And we were supposed to be out there for like a, a week. And um, while we were out there, we went up to San Francisco. We drove around, and I'm looking at all these houses sitting on stilts off the sides of hills. And I said, boy, if there's an earthquake, they're going to end up in the backyards of these houses. And we stopped, and I went to this book fair, and it was more of less a UFO book fair. And I bought... The Monuments of Mars, City on the Edge of Forever, the first edition. I bought uh, Light Years by Gary Kinder about Erwin Meyer and his photographs and eight millimeter film footage. And I picked up, um, uh, I picked up a whole bunch of different books and I took them back to the hotel and I'm reading Light Years by Gary Kinder And I'm reading a section where Edward Myers said that the Palladians had taken him into the future, and he had taken photographs of the aftermath of the San Francisco earthquake. And while I'm sitting there, and I just finished reading that, I'm hearing this rumbling. And I didn't know what was going on. And I said, when is the plane landing? And I'm sitting next to the airport because the hotel was right next to the San Jose airport because it was right on the same grounds. And then the next thing I know, the room is jumping, and I jump out the bed, and I start running for the door, and I'm going, I'm in frickin' California, (laughs) and I'm thinking, I would be out here doing the big one. So I get to the door, and just as I'm about to grab the doorknob, it stops. I've never been in an earthquake before, but it just stops. I open the door, I step out in the hall, and there were these double doors that kind of blocked off path to the elevator, and I didn't really notice it at the time, but they had closed. So I'm looking all the way down the hall, this long hotel, and my coworker, Craig, comes out of his room, and I'm yelling down the hall, hey, Craig, was that a – he's making tracks. He's in the stairwell, runs down the stairs, and I'm right behind him. And we're the only two idiots sitting out in the parking lot doing this earthquake. And the hotel people are coming in and they're going, you guys must not be from around here. I said, no, we're from the East coast where the ground stays still. I can't say that anymore because we've had one good quake that really shook everything up. But I was used to it at that point. So I didn't do anything when it started shaking. I just said, okay, here we go. (laughs) Anyway, um, that was the moment that. I realized that quake not only shook me up, but what I read shook me up. The Monuments of Mars, uh Light Years with Gary by Gary Kinder, and The Montauk Project by uh, uh I can't think of his name right now. Anyway, those are the those were the three books that really got me thinking about things. Anyway, um <clears throat> I I dove I delve into it deep enough that I had a good understanding of what had been going on to this point. But Hogan's book was the one that really got my my dandruff up on NASA. And I'm going, if any of this is real, why isn't NASA really looking at it deeply? I mean, because I thought the whole thing was when I was growing up that, hey, we were supposed to be looking for, signs of life either biological intelligent whatever and that's why we were going out there looking and if we're seeing evidence on another planet in the solar system of artificial construction uh, that would mean that there was life on two planets and if there's life on two planets in our solar system then that means that the odds of elsewhere in the universe it goes through the roof so that was the, the thinking that I had at that time, and I had a, a sighting years, years later um, here in Crofton, in Merlin, where at the time, there was a lot of Belgian sightings going on, these triangular-shaped craft, and my wife and I are sitting in a lot of traffic coming out of the parking lot of the supermarket. And we're just sitting there, and in front of us is a line of trees. They've built some townhouses on the side now, but it was just a line of trees. And I'm sitting here, look up in the corner of my windshield, and I see a blue beam coming down from something in the sky, and then it's gone. And I'm going, what am I looking at? And then the next thing I see is this huge white light coming over top of the trees, and I start turning the radio down, winding my window down. My wife says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm looking at this. And as that white light came over those trees, uh, the next thing was a red light. And then two more lights came out from over the trees. Now, normally, I would jump out the car and stood outside looking at this. But something didn't feel right. and I had a fright. I didn't want to get out of the car. And I think I know why I didn't want to get out the car. Even though there was three bright white lights in a triangular formation with the red light in the middle, those three bright lights did never reach, they never reached the ground. You could have been standing underneath of this craft and you would have never seen the light hit the ground. Let alone did they light up the cre- treetops that they it was flying over. And that I think is what scared me because I couldn't tell why the light wasn't coming down to the ground. And that was the spooky part. So that was a sighting that I had visually that really, really then set things off. And I started investigating even further. And we're about five minutes out from going to uh, the bottom of our break. But um, I'm gonna try to, squeeze a little bit more in here because there's a there's a lot of things that um, are going on right now at this point in time that are changing the public's perception of the universe they used to laugh the media used to laugh at all of the mentions of ufos and uh Unknown phenomena or whatever you want to call it, alien reductions, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But that's all changing now because the Navy came forward, they told us what's going on. Hey, there's these the tic tac the go fast the gimbal. And they're telling us what's going on. Why are they telling us? Why didn't the Air Force tell us? Why haven't they come forward? Why haven't they said anything? It's because uh, is there an Army, Navy, Air Force game going on right now where these guys, they don't know what the other guys know or what's happening? The Navy, a guy working for the Navy, uh, Salvador Payas He filed a patent for an electropropulsion system that lets you fly at thousands of miles an hour not only through the air but under the water and make 90-degree right-angle turns at full speed because it negates inertia. Okay, so how could I see something doing that in 1973 and the Navy's just now filing a patent for it in 2020? Hmm. It makes you wonder about what they know, when they knew it, and where are we going with this technology? And I'm going to be talking about alternative energy because that's another thing. Because Working with ABC, I got to see things that the public didn't get to see, the kind of stuff that was going on in, in Iraq during the Iraq War. Um, and that just made me sick to my stomach because it was man's inhumanity to the man. And it just... It just made me feel that this should have been, and the public should have got to see it just like they did with the Vietnam War. And that's what really got people riled up enough to say, hey, we gotta stop this. Because the stuff that I saw coming back, the videos that never made it to the public, made me feel like we need to stop this because this is stupidity. So with that, um, coming up on our break, but I'm going to see if Cynthia has any questions. Is, is she'd like to ask anything before we go into break or she'd like to take us out, but I could take us out if you'd like, Cynthia.
1: So- Well, I don't have questions now. I'm just finishing putting up your images on
0: page two. Okay.
1: <laughs> so I'll be more present in the next half hour.
0: All right. So I can take us out. And- All You're listening to the other side of Midnight, your host tonight is Cynthia and your guest is me, your audio engineer and AD Keith Morgan and we'll be back right after this break and stick to it. stay tuned because I got a lot more going on. <laughs>
3: this organized crime system has been able to monopolize the media and has been able to uh, control the government and control perception at a, on a wide scale is because it's the banks at the core and they've been given the privilege of creating money out of thin air using a technique called fractional reserve banking. Where the central banks backstop the money center banks to create money out of thin air So when you go to get a loan, whether it's a mortgage or a car loan, that's not deposit money, they're loaning you. Uh, They just credit your account with some dollar credits and you're off to the races. And then you spend the rest of your life paying interest on a mortgage that somebody created out of thin air And that's the reason why the bank is the largest building in every city on the planet, because they're making outrageous profits by getting to loan money at interest that they created out of thin air. This is Etienne de la Boissy Squared, the author of Government's Biggest Scam in History, Exposed. And some of my favorite conversations are the ones that I have on the other side of the news. With Timothy, Netta, and Kentia, thank you for doing what you do and providing the service that you provide.
0: to the other side of midnight your host is Conthea and I am actually your guest Keith Morgan I do your audio engineering and uh, uh, I, I'm the uh, AD air director most of the time so I'm gonna finish where I left off and um, I'm gonna tell you a story really one that's really funny Uh, Billy Cox, he's a writer for Florida Today, the newspaper in Florida, and I met him uh, back in the day when uh, actually we had asked for a copy of the videotape that uh, Lewis Research Center had done uh, where they had asked Richard to speak to the scientists and engineers there. And that was in 1990. Because in 1988, Goddard had asked him to speak. And I have the video up on my YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube and you put in the Morgan Curve in quotes, uh, you'll find my channel and you'll see the videos that are really rare and mostly nobody has it. And the one at Lewis Research Center which is now known as uh, John Glenn Research Center. We asked for that tape because the director opened and he said, uh, and Mr. Hoagland's been successful in uh, getting the president to state a return to Mars is our main goal, who the president at the time was George H. Bush. And we asked for the tape because we wanted to, you know, hear his opening. And Leo Meinlinger, the uh, producer for World News Tonight, he called NASA and said, uh, can we get a copy of the tape? Oh, we'll send it overnight. You'll have it Thursday or Friday. Friday comes around. He picks up the phone, calls him, says, uh, where's the tape? Oh, uh, we had uh, record machine problems. Monday or Tuesday? He picks up the phone on Tuesday. I'm sitting in the office all the times he's been calling them. And he says, "Uh, where's the tape? Oh, we forgot. Uh, We'll we'll get it to you. took a week and a half to get that tape. And while I was sitting in his office, I said, Leo, either they're that stupid or they're cutting out the part he said about the president. And a week and a half later, we get the tape. And sure enough, the whole introduction by the director is missing. And it's been replaced by the Mars animation where you're flying through the gullies and the valleys and over the surface of Mars. And there's music playing, and a character generator types out word for word what the director said minus the part about the president. But Mark Duane, the author of The Monuments of Mars, The Music, he was there, and he had an audio cassette recorder, and he recorded the opening. And he sent me a copy of the opening, and it's, yeah, it's kind of low quality, but you can hear... The director say, and Mr. Hoagland's been successful in convincing the president to state a return to Mars as a main goal. So how does that play into Billy Cox? Well, Billy Cox interviewed the, uh, the director and asked him, you know, well, why did you make that statement? And the director said, oh, I was just trying to help Mr. Hoagland out. I was like, okay. But that this was important enough for them to have a number for all the employees to sign off their time to attend this meeting. It was also important for them to put up posters announcing this briefing and have it on closed circuit to other areas of Lewis research. They had interviewed Richard for hours the day before, and they were going to put out a video called Hoagland's Mars, and they were going to uplink it to all the PBS stations. But then when the day came to uplink it, NASA pulled it. So... Billy actually had firsthand experience of how these guys work when it comes down to this kind of stuff. But then Billy was in contact with me, and he's telling me the story about how he was fishing with uh, David Dickerson. I believe that's his name. He's a he was a press secretary for Congressman Bill Nelson, and Billy's telling me that he was trying to get Dickerson to talk to Nelson about uh, getting taking getting NASA to take better pictures of the face. And Billy said, Dickerson replied to him, "Nelson's trying to run for governor of Florida, and he can't be associated with crap metaphysics." And I'm like, okay. Now the ironic thing is. Billy catches this fish. Dickerson picks up his camera. He takes a rapid-fire images of Billy catching the fish. And then when Dickerson gets home, he calls Billy and says, you'll never believe what's on this film. And he sent Billy pictures, and Billy sent me the pictures. In the first shot, you see Billy catching the fish. He's pulling him up. He's he's got the line in his hand and just above his fishing rod you see this dark oval shape can't make out what it is it's kind of out of focus but everything is in focus from the inside of the boat all the way back to the horizon sharp as a tack you can even see the glint of the light off the fishing line okay so in the next shot, Billy pulls the fish up in front of him. is holding him up in the air, only one motion. And then directly above Billy is that oval device. But now you can see it's got a dome on the top of it. It is a typical saucer-shaped craft. It's still out of focus. And everything else is in focus. Why is that out of focus? So Billy sent me the images, and I found it was astonishing. But the another ironic thing is, guess who the head of NASA is to this day? Bill Nelson. <laughs> That's kind of weird, right? You've got the guy whose press secretary was trying to keep him away from you know, crackpot metaphysics. And here this guy is now running NASA. Now, in 1965. I was – I came across this article in the New York Times. It was a small article, but the article was telling us about how the unions at NASA were upset because key positions were being given to retired military personnel. Now, NASA's charter says only civilians can run NASA. Well, technically, retired military personnel are now technically civilians. But they still have their oath of allegiance, oath of secrecy. And if the military, somebody in the military says, put your finger on this or put your thumb on that, they're going to do it. So that was 1965. That was four years before we went to, to the moon. So they were putting their people in place to take over NASA so that they could squash anything that may come across when we went to the moon. And that's exactly what they did because there was stuff on on the moon, things that happened that we weren't privy to. Now, I don't know all of it, but I know a lot of the stuff that was said. So now, um, images four and five under the other side of midnight.com under tonight's show in my section
4: those, those are
0: the two pictures that David Dickerson took with Billy catching a fish. So you can look at them for yourself and you can figure out what's going on. Now, the next pictures, uh, pictures 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, they actually belong to uh, Jonathan Reed. And Jonathan Reed has a story where he had an encounter that was just say at least it was it was astonishing but he came across an entity which he actually beat upside the head with a stick because it imploded his dog killing the dog and this little picture number 6 shows the guy laid out on this golden covered tarp or blanket that uh, Reed had put him on, and dr Jonathan Reed is a doctor he's I guess he's really pretty versed in uh anatomy and so forth, and uh picture seven shows another angle, the first shot you can see that where he hit him upside the head, uh breaking the skin open on his head
1: so, so Keith, yeah, I'm looking at that number six. What's the red part? Uh,
0: That's that's his skin, the skull where uh, his skin on his skull peeled away, and you're actually seeing that this entity's blood. I'm assuming Mm -hmm. it's blood. And Jonathan had a wild story because he said he took this body and put it in the freezer. And even when it in the freezer, he started hearing noises coming out of it after it had been in there for a long time. It should be frozen solid. And he said this thing was still in some kind of state where it was still alive. So <clears throat> his, his is a wild story. But image number eight is a picture of the diamond-shaped craft that he said he found when he heard this humming after he hit this thing and this thing is hovering above the ground. And then image nine is his bracelet that this creature was wearing. I'm assuming he was wearing it on his right wrist. And I'll explain that in a minute. But then picture number 10 shows the underside of this because according to uh, Dr. Reed, This bracelet actually opens and expands and contracts back around the wrist, and there's no hinges involved. That is unusual. And looking under the underside, there are – it looks like there's these little pins with beads on each one of them. And he said that when you strap this around your wrist, these things penetrate your wrist. And what you, do you mean
1: penetrates your wrist?
0: They stick into your wrist. They stick into the skin. Little
1: nodules.
0: Yeah, because they're actually little pins sticking out of those little look like little beads that the pin is sticking through. Uh-huh. And so they're very
1: flexible. It's really artistic. For those of you who can't see this, it's really quite a beautiful bracelet. I'd love to have that.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I noticed something because I had gone to one of. Uh, Uh, Jonathan's uh, lectures and when he showed this bracelet I'm looking at it and I'm going hmm this looks something looks familiar and I looked upside down to look at it so picture number 11 is it rotated around and if you look at the center of the three symbols okay that one in the middle looks kind of familiar to me and if you go back up and look at that entity he has what looks like, I call him the turtle head. If you go hmm. down and you look at that icon, it's an icon. It's not a symbol. It's an icon in the middle of the other two symbols.
1: Maybe it's a kind of hieroglyph.
0: And yeah, it's just like the PBS symbol that we that the PBS uses for public broadcasting, which is a bubble head person with a little nose sticking out and, and a skinny neck that looks like the same type of thing for this entity. If that is an icon representing this entity um, with that band going around the center, almost sort of like Geordie in Star Trek wearing that vision band, that would be Mm -hmm. where his his vision would be. I think that's the correct orientation. I think it was on the entity's right wrist. And that icon is of his people wherever he came from i have no idea what these controls did but there's a controversy behind that because jonathan actually strapped this on and on the video he turns into a ball of light and goes off wait
1: who turns into a ball of light
0: jonathan reed he strapped it to his wrist and and people are saying oh he's you know he made this up and then there's just people cheering and applauding and stuff when I saw the original film, that the video that he shot when he strapped this thing on, there was nobody applauding, nobody uh, make uh, audience or anything like that. So it's it's somebody is doctored it, added audio, whatever. It, it's it's just like the uh, dome of the rock UFO. When that happened and that came out, suddenly someone came out with this bogus uh, video, and it shows the light coming down over the dome of the rock. But the thing is, the lighting on the dome of the rock never changes. But in the original, the, the real videos, you can see when this bright light comes down, the dome of the rock lights up on that side, and the shadowing changes. And then as this craft starts to move away from the domes really slowly you see the lighting change right along with it. And then when that thing shoots up into the sky, that light goes whew, and the dome goes back to being dark on that side again. And on all the fake videos, the guys got audio going, and the people are talking about, oh yeah, we see these things out in, in Texas, and we don't know what they are. And they're all chanting and talking and chatting about this thing. and. I'm going, no, this is fake, okay? And then a girl, 180 degrees on the other side of the Dome of the Rock, she's closer, and she's got even better video of this. And it comes down. It looks more like a star cross. It comes down. The light increases on the dome. And when it moves over to the side, you see the lighting on the dome move with it. And then when this thing shoots up, the light goes away with the dome. And there's a double flash before this thing takes off. In the legitimate videos, in the bogus videos, you never see that double flash. But you always have somebody throwing a monkey wrench into this whole idea of what's going on because they gotta cover it up. I don't know who put that out, why they put it out, but it's bogus. So if you see the Dome of the Rock videos and you don't see the double flash and you don't see the the lighting on the dome change, then you know it's fake. The girl who was a lot closer to the dome, you could see the street. You could see a car driving down the street. In that video with the light that didn't change the dome, you could see the street, No cars, no people, no motion, no lights flickering. It was just, it was a static picture that they used to create this Photoshopped animation. Anyway, let me get back on course because we got a lot of stuff to cover. So that's Jonathan Reed's story. Um, I think he's telling the truth. I can't prove it 100%, but I'm at 98% that he's telling the truth. So the picture after that, number 12, when I was working at ABC, I got to meet the vice president of the United States, George H. Bush. He was in the studio, and I said to him, yeah, my mom worked under you when you were director of Central Intelligence. And he said, oh, yeah, what's your name? I said, Gene Morgan. Oh, okay. And he took out a card, and he autographed the card. And that's what you see in picture number 12. And I gave it to my mother. And the reason it looks tattered is I asked her several years ago, I said, Mom, where's that card I gave you from George Bush? And she said, oh, I put it with the picture. And I said, what picture? And she pulls out a picture, and here he is giving her an award at Central Intelligence. And then she pulls out these other pictures, and here's other directors giving her awards at Central Intelligence. And I'm going, I guess he did know her. Now, my mother never really talked about a lot of stuff that she did there, but she did give me an impression of some things that uh, she wasn't supposed to talk about, I think. And to this day, you ask my mother, who did you used to work for? I worked for the blank, blank, blank. <laughs> so she's not going to say anything if she if she did know anything. But. <clears throat> The weird thing was when I was talking to him, he made this comment. I don't know why he said it, but he said, if the American people knew what we had done, they would run us out of town on a rail, hard and feathered. And I wasn't about to jeopardize my white house clearance, my Capitol gallery pass clearance and my DC police pass clearance by saying, what the heck are you talking about? I wasn't about to ask him that it was like, he was trying to get something off his chest without disclosing whatever it was I have no idea what it was but it was interesting and I'll have to tell you one day about the Kennedy assassination and something my mother showed me that I think is involved the whole thing but that's another story and I still got a lot of stuff to go through I might be able to tell you at the end of the show if we got time so That was my meeting with uh, George Bush. I also met my childhood hero, Senator John Glenn, astronaut Senator John Glenn, which Lewis Research Center is now named after. He was on Nightline and I've met him in in the green room and I'm talking to him and I said, so what do you think of all these things about these UFOs? And he said well i'm an agnostic when it comes to this kind of stuff and he said but i've got really good friends that have seen stuff and i can't dismiss them and he says but all of these photographs and and stuff are blurred balls of light out of focus you can't make out what they are and i said have you seen the photos by uh this guy named billy meyer is a swedish farmer he's got one arm he gets his film done at the local film store He's got 35 millimeter stills and eight millimeter uh, film footage, sharp as a tack, showing you these things in motion as well as just hovering in the sky. And he said, no, I haven't. So the next time he was on Nightline, which was a few days later, I had my contact from the Pleiades book. It's a coffee table book with the pictures that Billy Myers took. And I'm showing him the book. And he's looking at it and he's going, you know, if just one of these is real, this is fantastic. And he autographed the book. And uh, I would have put that up too, but, but I figured I had enough stuff I got for Kinthea to put up. And it was uh, October 11th, 1988. And this was before December uh, 19th, um, 19th, 1988 which was when the Goddard Space Flight Center briefing took place. So I've got John Glenn's autograph, my childhood hero. Thing is, is that later down the road, I heard uh, Linda Moulton Howell talking to Colonel Philip Corso, the Day After Roswell author. And I had his book, The Day After Roswell, I read it. And it made 100% sense. And I know that Corso's telling us the truth. And the reason I know he's telling the truth is because Corso told Linda Melton Howell in the interview that he had talked to Senator John Glenn. He had brought up to Glenn the fact that they had taken one of these wafers, which he says he now knows is a microchip, hooked it up to an electric golf cart with no batteries, just the chip put a drop of water on the uh, wafer, he called it, and they're driving around in this electric golf cart with just a drop of water on this wafer, no batteries. And John Glenn said to him, well, I'm an agnostic when it comes to this kind of stuff. So I knew that Corso had definitely talked to Senator Glenn. Now I met Corso's son, at an ex-conference that Stephen Bassett used to put on these ex-conferences in Gaithersburg, And his son was scared. He was supposed to speak, but he was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. He said, we've been getting calls telling us, don't put out any more books, don't say anything else, don't release any more information. And he says, I don't know what to do. And I said, look, your father did the right thing. He told us the truth. And he realized that the people need to know the truth. And I said, don't let them intimidate you, because if something happens to you, the spotlight's going to be on them and they know it. So there's not much they can do. So don't let them intimidate you. And if there's anything else that your father wanted to get out, put it out. So that's how I know that Corso actually talked to John Glenn, because he said the same thing and we're coming up on the break here in a minute. And oh, we... wait,
1: Keith, yeah. Before you move further, I want to come back to that drop of water. So, you're saying it was running off the energy off that drop of water?
0: Yep. No so bad. That's the
1: forerunner of what uh, Ken, you know, what Watkins is doing.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. They, we could have been running on water decades ago. And that's when I'm I'm going to get to uh uh Stan Myers, Denny Klein, John, Kansas. Those are three guys that had technologies that could use water that got us off of oil long time ago, but. These things were suppressed
2: we're
0: and people, yeah, <laughs> we're coming up on it.
1: <laughs> so you're listening to the other side of midnight and, uh, Keith has been, uh, handling the show while I've been getting up images. The uh, show tonight is called personal encounters of a third Kind." <laughs> And Keith Morgan is our guest tonight. And this is Kinthea, Tinko hosting <laughs> with Keith. We'll be back after the break.
5: Com. Join Richard C. Hoagland and an array of fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyper-dimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archive shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcasts heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research, real data, real science. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com talk radio or pictures on demand. Liberate your hyper-dimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Also episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio or pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com
1: And welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight Richard is um in the rain. <laughs> I'm sorry to say nobody can replace him but um hopefully they're going to get the the trucks are working on getting the lines back up. He's been in and out of power and internet on and off. So here we are. This is Kenzie and our guest tonight is our sound engineer Keith Morgan who is uh, has an amazing panoply of stories to share with us
0: tonight. So Keith? Thank you. Do you continue. want to continue? Yes. Okay. So let's see. We went over Billy Myers um, but I didn't go through the pictures. So if you're still on, for these guys are joining us right at the top of the hour, if you go to the other side of and you click on tonight's show, and click on the banner for tonight's show, you'll come to uh, the section where we have my pictures up and we're down to picture number 13, I believe now. And for most of you who know the X-Files and you've seen that poster that says, I want to believe that is a rendition of picture number 13 which is actually Edward Meyer's photograph. Okay, These are 35-millimeter stills, and they're sharp as a tack. They're not blurred. They're not out of focus, any of that. Um, and the rendition in the X-Files is based on this particular photograph. Now, I just saw um, Third Phase of Moon release uh, a video, and they said, oh, this is a sharp video that's in focus and, uh, and a close-up. And they said, it looks like Billy Meyer's, uh craft. And I'm going, it is Billy Myers' craft. It's his eight millimeter film footage. They just cleaned it up and enhanced it. And it doesn't look like film, but it is Billy Myers' work. Um, Billy Myers' story goes like this. He's been in contact with a group of people from the Plei- Pleiades star system since way back. And <clears throat> he tells a story about how he was in the field with his father in Switzerland as he was a farmer and this craft came over and made no noise. And he asked his father, what is that? And his father says, Oh, that's uh, Adolf Hitler's secret weapons. But he he didn't know what it was. And from that point on, uh, Billy says that he had had face-to-face contact with these people because the craft would land. They'd come get him. He then became telepathically connected with these people, and he would know when they were coming because they would let him know telepathically that he was coming. They were coming. And they allowed him to take 8-millimeter film footage of these things in motion and doing weird things and 35-millimeter stills that were very, very... Um, sharp and he said this has been going on for quite a while and he put out a book that has a lot of stuff that they told him about they told him why a hole in our ozone layer was taking place was because we were unaware that these nuclear reactors that we are running are putting out particles that we have yet to detect and they pass through the ray domes, or containment domes of the reactors and they get into the atmosphere and they're magnetically attracted to the poles and they destroy the ozone layer. Now that is another story in itself because we didn't have to be on water reactors, uranium reactors. They chose to, to- use that technology because One, California was working on water reactors, and Tennessee was working on thorium reactors. Thorium reactors are still nuclear reactors, but they are self-regulating. They are safer. They're 2,000% more efficient than water reactors. But because Richard Nixon from California wanted all the jobs to go to California instead of Tennessee, he had all the jobs, everything sent to to California for the water reactors. The same guy who created the water reactor created the thorium or molten salt reactor. These guys wanted to build a, a nuclear plane. And I'm like, isn't that kind of stupid? If the plane crashes, you're going to have radiation all over the place. But they realized that the shielding and everything needed for water reactors was too heavy for a plane. So the creator of the water reactor came up with a thorium reactor, the molten salt reactor. The molten salt reactor, if the temperature gets too high, you don't get the China syndrome. And for those who don't know what the China syndrome is, the movie came out back in the 70s. This is Three Mile Island started to have their problem. The China syndrome, China syndrome is when the reactor goes critical, starts to melt down, and the control rods get destroyed, and the reaction continues and continues to accelerate until you've got temperatures that are massive. And then it starts to melt through the concrete, melt through the floor, melt through the earth. And they call it the China syndrome because theoretically it would keep on melting through the core of the earth to the other side to China. And that's why they called it the China syndrome reactors, on the other hand, if the temperature gets too high, they shut down. The reaction shuts down. It starts to cool off. Once the temperature reaches a certain temperature after cooling down, the reaction starts back up and it heats up again. So even if the power went out and you had no way to actually stop the reaction it would stop itself. The other reason they wanted water reactors is because the byproduct of water reactors or uranium reactors is plutonium. And they needed the plutonium to build their atomic weapons because we were in an arms race with the Russians. Now, thorium reactors, they have a byproduct, but you know what it is? It's uranium. It is not plutonium it's uranium. And then it takes that uranium back into the system and uses it as part of the fuel. So there is no waste byproduct from a thorium reactor because it's taking uranium back into the system to use it as part of the fuel. So you, you have a 2,000% more efficient device than a water reactor. It's safe because you can't have a China Syndrome meltdown. They even have a a safety plug that will drain the reactor if the power goes out because in this drainage pipe, there is a solid core of molten salt thorium because there's a fan blowing over to keep it cool so that the the molten salt stays solid. If the power goes out, the fan stops blowing and then the core drains out because it now melts that plug and it drains into a holding tank underneath of the reactor. Another safety so feature. Keith,
1: are, are you saying that this technology is already available now and they're just choosing not to use it?
0: Well, no, it was available back then. It's still available now, but the reason it's now coming forward is because These guys went into the reactor, um, the building that the reactor was running in, which was running perfectly back then, and they had shut it down. They found all of this paperwork in a closet with all the instructions and details and mathematics, everything needed about the Thorium reactor. And somebody said, oh, let's publish this on on the internet. And they did. And now China, Japan, and a lot of other places are looking at thorium reactors as energy sources because thorium is a lot more abundant than uranium. Uranium, you've got to go look for it and then you got to mine it. Thorium is in the ground everywhere. Okay. It's a lot more abundant. It's cheaper than the uranium. And it, it's a much safer. If you're going to go nuclear, you might as well use thorium. But these guys chose to go for the dollar, send the jobs to California attitude and forget about the safety instance. And those are the kinds of things that are going on that just drove me crazy knowing that these these technologies existed. So I'm going to move forward because that's going to be in the uh, alternative energy source section when I get to that. So... I just finished up with Billy, Billy Myers, not only was they told us about uh, the nuclear reactors and these particles that we haven't discovered yet, getting through the containment walls and so forth, they also told him that the Sun's not a fusion reactor. And I've been saying that for the longest time. And after Hoagland and Torn uh, came up with the uh, message from Sidonia telling us about the 19.5 circumscribed tetrahedral geometry and the energy inwelling at the pole and coming out at the latitude of 19.5. Yeah, that's the way the sun is working. The more mass you have, the more energy is shunted across. Uh, I remember when Richard and I was setting up the Enterprise mission for the students at Dunbar and Admiral Truly, head of NASA, came to speak to the students. So did uh, Barbara Bush, she came to speak. And Admiral Truly is speaking to the students and he's saying, yeah, we're going out to Neptune with the Voyager. And when we get there, we're going to find this frozen ball of gas because the planet's so far away from the sun, it's frozen solid. And I raised my hand and I said, excuse me, I wouldn't say that if I were you. Because what Earl Torn and Richard Hoagland figured out was that rotating mass reaches into other dimensions. And the more mass you have, the more energy is shunted across from one dimension into our three-dimensional world. Mathematicians have calculated there's at least 25 other dimensions out there. A key signature of one dimension folding into another one yields a hexagonal pattern. They sent one of the voyagers over the pole of Saturn because they needed to get to one of the moons of Saturn that they wanted to check out. They took enough pictures going over the pole of Saturn to make an animation of the pole. And what did they see? a perfect hexagonal cloud pattern. The clouds are going in the opposite direction of the rotation of the planet at over 300 miles an hour. The clouds go to the corners of the hexagonal and they turn. There's nothing in our physics that can explain that. Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, Uranus are all putting out more energy than they're getting from the sun, and NASA's scratching their heads and butts not knowing where it's coming from. Oh, it must be nuclear. No, we don't live in a nuclear universe. We live in an electromagnetic universe. You take away the electrochemical properties of an atom, and you don't have a universe whatsoever, okay? It's electromagnetic. That's what Tesla was trying to get us into. We're starting to move into that age. I'll come back to that a little later, but I want to talk about the stuff. Ted Koppel let me do the two shows. He are going to let me do two shows. One was on, like I said, the Phoenix Lights, and the other one was on Project Disclosure, Stephen Greer's coalition of over 450 people at the time, just a lot higher now, who wanted to blow the whistle on what they, the government knew about extraterrestrials. But one of the things that took place September 17, 1989, was the Verona's incident or Verona's encounter. Now I know this date very well because my birthday is September 17th, 1955. So in 1989, in Voronezh, Russia, this incident takes place. Now, at that time, Mr. George H. Bush, President of the United States, said, I'm not going to meet with Mr. Gorbachev without an agenda. And he did not want to meet with Mr. Gorbachev, no matter how much people were pushing him in that direction. Then this story came out, and Task, the Russian news organization, released this story. These children had seen this craft come down, and these tall aliens came out. They said they looked like they had three eyes, but based on the drawings and everything, they looked like they had some kind of helmets on with some kind of... Free holes or lighting positions where the eyes would be. Maybe they were looking out. Maybe they have a third eye. I don't know. But they were tall. They came out with a cube-shaped robot. And this made headlines. And then the next thing you know, George Bush says, oh, I'm going to meet with Mr. Gorbachev in Malta. Okay but why do you meet on a ship during a storm that you knew was coming days in advance and there's video footage of the small boat going to the the big ship, dashing around in the harbor like crazy in the storm. What has got you so paranoid that you have to meet on that ship rather than meeting on land and talking about whatever you got to talk about? I think Gorbachev used this incident to twist Mr. Bush's arm to get him to the table. Why? I don't know, but I think that's what he did. That was September 17th, 1989. That's what pictures 16, 17, and 18 are all about. Okay? And the thing is, is that when that picture, picture number 16 came out, I saw, if you click on that image, it'll blow up, and you'll see in the upper left corner, I put a yellow circle around it, sort of circle, you see this drawing that this kid did. On that drawing, in the circle, within the circle, or oval, is this symbol. If you look at the drawings below, you'll see on the belts around these three-eyed aliens, that same symbol, and on the football-shaped craft as well, same symbol. And I said to myself, I've seen that symbol somewhere before. And sure enough, I went to look for a book that I had, and in picture number 17, there was the picture. Now, this picture was taken in 1966, and there's two shots. This is the second shot. The first shot, you're seeing this on the, on his, from its side, from the edge, so you can't see the bottom of it. It looks like two deep dish pie pans, one on top of the other. In this shot, it's turned up on its side, and now you see the symbol underneath of it. And if you want to compare, you look at that, and you look at the symbol in 16. And then in 17, there's an artist's drawing of what the kids encountered. I don't know who did the drawing, but that's the, the drawing of uh, that. And if you look up in the left-hand corner, you see that exact same symbol on the bottom of that craft. And it almost looks like it's the identical craft of what's up in the, up in the air. Um, now, I said, I told Richard, I said, this thing kind of looks familiar. The symbol, if you put a circle under the center division, it would be the symbol represented, representing uh, Uranus, the planet Uranus. But there's no circle. And I said, this looks familiar. And it looks like an alteration of uh, another symbol. And if you take the opposite corners and you twist them so that they touch the center, you get a swastika. And I'm wondering if that has anything to do with the breakaway civilization that Richard's been talking about. And this is just the Nazis with a new symbol to hide the fact that this is who they are and this is one of their craft. Because that square-shaped robot that came out of that craft would be some kind of technology along the lines of if the Nazis had continued to this point in time or to that point in time in 1989, that's probably a robot that would have had that kind of technology. But I don't Keith, know.
1: what about the three eyes?
0: Yeah, I, they could be three cameras and the person inside could, could have a screen that they're looking at. I don't know. Speculation. It's false speculation.
1: In the drawing, the shape doesn't even really look humanoid the way yep. the top of the body is. Yep. It's, it's not like the illustration in 16 where it's a little more human-like. Yeah. it,
0: it It's all speculation. We're, we're, we're grasping at straws. Well, I'm grasping at straws because all I know is that these kids were traumatized by this. And then if you scroll down to 19, in September 16th, 1994, five years later, almost to the day – actually, it would be to the day because you have the one day you're missing – you get this encounter in, in Zimbabwe. And the children, there's over 60 children that saw this craft come down from a group of five landing between the trees. And 19 is one child's interpretation drawing. And then as you go down, image 20, 21, 22, 23. If you look at those, each one of those kids, different kids drew these. The craft is between the trees. And that's how they described what they saw, that this craft landed in between the trees. And four pictures show this thing in between the trees. It landed in the area where the kids were not allowed to go. But the kids ran over there anyway when they saw this thing come down out of the group of five.
1: Well, and also think of like the the ability it has to maneuver to be in between the trees. I mean, I mean, we think of these craft as going really fast,
0: really. And it's between the trees. Yeah. Well, there was another incident um, involving kids again. I don't have the date and time, but they said they saw this craft come down and it actually made this maneuver and it swung around and went into a tree at the tree and it should have hit the tree, but it disappeared into the tree, they said, or something like that. And then as they kept watching this in awe, it came back out of the tree and maneuvered back up to the sky. And it was a saucer shaped craft. So,
1: so maybe this is a multidimensional kind of event. Maybe it's not purely just physical, but it's like
0: another. That's the um, question. That is, the yeah. that is a great question. We don't know. Um, the later, hopefully, I'm going to get to the part where I'm going to talk about my my encounter, because I'm I'm right there at it now. We got five minutes before the break. Now, I had two encounters of the third kind, not only the visual visual ones that I had, like the triangular craft that I talked about at the beginning of the show, and um, and the one in high school it was just a light making a turn. I had two encounters of the third kind where I am consciously aware of the encounter. Now there may be others that I'm not consciously aware of because these guys have the ability to put you into a trance-like state and you're you're completely unaware of what's going on until you start to come out of it and then you start to perceive what's going on around you. So <clears throat> I'm going to kind of wait till we get to the bottom of the hour and then tell my story about all of this. Cause we're, we're really, we're really running out of time and there's a whole bunch of other stuff I want to talk about. But what's happening right now is people are starting to wake up to the fact that we're not alone. We have never been alone and we never will be alone in this universe. And Whatever's going on right now, I think it's time for us to make that discovery. My colleagues at ABC in the maintenance shop, they laughed at me in 1985 about having an Atari computer. Why are you wasting your time with that computer? And then when I told them that the Berlin Wall was coming down in 1989 and communism was going to fall all across Eastern Europe, no, 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 that's impossible. When communism moves in, it never moves out. I said, all right, we'll find out in 1989. And that was 1985. And when the Berlin Wall came down in November 1985, I had to nudge him and say, hey, what I tell you? Okay. Well, so
1: what made you foresee this? I mean, were you like looking at trends or was this simply an intuitive? No, I was looking in- at
0: stuff that people ignore. They were ignoring Nostradamus. Oh, that's just, yeah, that's just folly. Yeah, he didn't. Predict anything, and da da da, and they ignored him. So I looked at what he was saying, and I didn't look at the interpretations. I just read what he said, and I said, okay, I think I see what he's going with this. And one of the ones was he said that in the year eighty plus nine, the vast east collapses, the law of Thomas would fall, and and uh, the the vast east collapse, and the wall would come. He said something about the wall coming down. So I put the pieces together and I said, okay, and eighty plus nine is eighty-nine. So Berlin Wall's coming down. Communism's going to give up the ghost at some point. He said that the, the eagle and the bear, or something like that, were going to become brothers. And obviously, that's the United States and Russia. And Russia embraced democracy, so it became brothers in that respect. Mm. So I'm looking at all these little clues. And people were laughing at me. And in 1993, I told them, I told people, the World Trade Centers are coming down. I thought an earthquake was going to do it, but I didn't expect idiots to fly planes into them. But they came down, and people didn't believe that. And I told my coworker when we were walking to lunch, like an hour, I mean, a, it was a cup a week or two before. 9 11 took place that this was going to happen and she said don't say that my sister works in there and i said i'm just telling you what Notre Dame said luckily her sister was late to work so she didn't she wasn't in the buildings when all that took place so we're on we're at the break um you're listening to the other side of midnight um Cynthia is your host i'm your audio engineer telling you my side of the story And we'll be back after this break.
4: Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day.
1: Hey, <laughs> welcome back to the other side of midnight. Our guest tonight and co-host Morgan, We're, we are keep going back and forth over who's going to do the breaks. I'm having a really funny laugh here. If you could see this chat window in Skype, you'd know what I mean. <laughs> so Keith is uh, on a roll. He's just got so much to share share with us and he didn't want to get into this next piece because he didn't want to be interrupted and I know why it's a great story so Keith come back on and if you uh, want to track his items you can just use the fast links on the page the show is personal encounters of a third kind and uh, Keith Morgan is sharing with us his great adventures come on back Keith okay
0: so I was telling you about, I was about to tell you about the uh, two encounters I had that I am consciously aware of where I encountered entities. Um, usually I'm behind the scene. I don't talk much and I just like to stay out of the, out of the spotlight, but I've got so much stuff in my head. I got to dump it out. Uh, I'm 65 coming up on 66 in September, as you know, and I, I think it's time for me to dump what I know out and let everybody know um, what I know, and they can accept it or they can dismiss it. But what I say may help somebody else who's dealing with this kind of stuff. Um, I think about the the children at Verona's and Zimbabwe who were traumatized by what they had happened to them. And they're all adults now, but they still need closure. And I think we're coming to that point where the closure is coming. And and, uh, and I was talking about Notre Dame, and Notre Dame's is, did say, one of the things that he said is that uh, somewhere between now and 2032, we're gonna uh, become fully aware and interactive with extraterrestrials. Now he doesn't say it like that but based on what i read um i'm pretty sure that's what he's he's alluding to so that means that this cloak of secrecy has got to come down we can't move into the next generation of technologies unless it does because we've been burning stuff since we've been cavemen and it's time to get off of that and really get into how the universe really works in terms of energy generation and we can tap directly into that, and that's what Te- Nicole Tesla wanted us to do. So I think we're <clears throat> we're at the point where we're going to make these these major revelations in science, and what we thought and held on to as this is the way it works, and there is no other way it works, is going to fall by the wayside. Uh, my electronics teacher at High Point in 1973, he says. Yeah, you need plates the size of a football field to make a one-farad capacitor. Now we got these one-farad capacitors that are small enough to fit on a circuit board, and they're tiny. And now we've got 3,300-farad capacitors, because capacitors were measured in microfarads, picofarads, and nanofarads, small portions of a farad. One farad is a heck of a lot of energy and a 3300 farad capacitor is a lot of energy. So we're moving into a new uh, era of energy storage and distribution, and I'm gonna get to that in a little bit. But let me tell you about my two encounters. Uh, I used to walk from... Sorry. I used to walk from Chillum, Maryland down to the Carter Barron uh, in D. C., Washington, D.C. It was about a mile and a half, two-mile walk, something like that. And then I would walk back home. Sometimes I did it just to blow off steam. Other times I would go down just to listen to the music coming out of the Carter, Carter Barron in the summer. And one night I walked to the Carter Barron and I get there and I hear somebody say, hey, Keith, how's it going? And I look over on this bench just outside the gate, and I said, who is that? And I walk over, and turns out it's Melvin Lindsey. Melvin Lindsey became the uh, WHUR DJ who created what's known as the Quiet Storm. And we had met when we first got into Howard back in 1973. 73, and, uh, excuse me, not 73, uh, 1974, 75, actually, is when we met. And I got into Howard in 74. And Melvin and I met each other at that point, first time. And we also met uh, Denise Rolark. And if anybody recognizes that name, she was the uh, daughter of Calvin Rolark, and I asked her, are you the daughter of Calvin Rolark? She said, yes, I am. And so we all got to know one another. And our whole tenure at Howard was, we, we bumped across each other every once in a while. But Melvin was sitting on the bench. I sat down and talked to him because he was hosting the show because he was, at that point, Mr. Quiet Storm. And the show was about to end. So we talked for a while and then I said, okay, I gotta go and I walked back home. As I'm walking back home, I'm about three blocks from my, my house, my mother's house. And I'm standing on the other side of the street across from this path that we used to take to go to junior high school, which went between the woods and the houses. And I'm looking up above the trees and there's something with these colored lights going on up above the trees and That's the last thing I remember The next thing I remember Is I'm walking down the path and I'm coming out of some kind of fog and It's like I'm waking up and I look to my right and there's this little short guy and I look to the left and there's this little short guy and I bolt, and I run down the path and shimmy under the car. At least I think I'm shimmying under this car. And these little feet come up alongside the car. And then I get this feeling that I never had it before in my life. It felt like somebody anesthetized me. And even under anesthesia, being put under, I have never felt this. And I was trying to fight staying awake, and I couldn't, and I just, and I'm out. The next thing I remember is I'm waking up at home and I can't remember if I was in the backyard or in my bed because we had a hammock in the backyard and I couldn't remember if I was in the hammock or in the house. And I thought, wow, that was a weird dream. So I just ignored it. But then it must have been 10 years later. It was years later. Um, I was married and living out here in Crofton, Maryland, And my wife is in bed with me behind me. I'm sleeping on my left side. And I'm sound asleep. And the next thing I know, I'm just opening my eyes, looking off the side of the bed. And there's these two little guys standing there. I think there might have been three. couldn't see the other guy. And I'm going... Okay, you've been working at this too hard. Because just before I went to sleep that night, I was getting discouraged. I was going, you know, you've been researching this stuff. You've been putting the pieces together. Maybe you're just wasting your time. But I was determined to prove class either right or wrong. And at that point, it was looking like he was wrong, but I wasn't sure. And I was getting frustrated. And I was thinking, maybe I need to just give this up. And that's the way I went to sleep. But then when I woke up and I'm looking side of the bed and the, the guys are standing there, I'm thinking, okay, well, if they're standing there, maybe I can reach out and touch them. So I'm trying to move my right arm and I can't move it because I'm laying on my left. And the, then after a while, my right arm starts to move out from under the covers and the guy in front takes my right arm. Then there's the dark period again. I don't remember what happened. Then I'm coming out of the dark period, and the guy's putting my arm back under the covers. And then that feeling that I'd never had before, like somebody anesthetized me, I couldn't stay awake, and that heavy feeling of sleep came over me, and boom, I'm out. The next morning, I wake up, and I'm going, oh, man, that was a weird dream. And then I'm going, "Okay." what was that guy doing with my right arm? And I looked at my right arm and diagonally across the vein on my right arm was the deepest, neatest cut I ever saw in my life. I could take my thumb and index finger on my left hand and separate it and look down inside of it. No blood, no pain. It just looked like I was born with a hole in my arm. And I I'm trying to figure out what the heck, what is that? How did they do that? And I showed it to my wife, and she went, how did you do that? And I told her the story, and she was like, well, okay, I don't want to have nothing to do with it. But that's the kind of stuff that was going on, and I should have gone to work and said, hey, guys, look at this, and opened up the slot up and showed them. I didn't, or I should have gone... Ooh, I need to go to the hospital and get stitches. No, it was almost like deep down inside my subconscious. I was supposed to see it, acknowledge it, but do nothing with it. And that is when I said something's going on. There's, there's really something going on. And that's when I started pushing. And I said, I'm gonna stick with this until I have these conclusions and I'm gonna figure this out. And after I discovered the Morgan Curve, it was like, it was a no brainer. There's something definitely going on and they don't want us to know. So those were my two encounters of the third kind. Yes.
1: So Keith, when you had these encounters, what kind of feeling did you have when you came out of out of it like when you woke up or came back to consciousness
0: when i woke up the next morning after feeling like somebody anesthetized me and i couldn't stay awake it um i don't know I, i i wasn't excited i wasn't giddy or oh like i said i i should have been oh i gotta go to hospital and get some stitches that cut healed completely. I don't you can't see, there's no scar. There's no indication. The only indication is that that vein <clears throat> used to go straight back down my arm. It now makes this slight S curve.
1: So you, there was not a fearful anxiety kind of feeling. It was, you're just neutral?
0: Yeah. Really? Yeah. I I have no idea why. Now, <clears throat> I did talk to Ted, um, I mean, uh, or excuse me, not Ted. I did talk to Richard um, not too long ago. And I told him about the epiphany I had. <laughs> Remember I told you that I, what I thought was going on? Because I was like, who would have known that I was going to be where I was on that night walking down the street at that time of the morning? Who would have known that I would have been in Crofton laying in the bed at that time in the morning sleep other than me
1: right which makes me think i mean i often think that we we are sovereign beings and we're multi we we have a multi-layered consciousness and it makes me think that on another level of consciousness you are having an agreement with these beings that, that it's not against your will it's actually a cooperation
0: between the two of you yeah um i do remember having a dream before any of the other encounters where i i barely remember the dream but i was standing in front of somebody and it was they were not of this world and I couldn't make out exactly from what I remember waking up out of the dream, but I do remember waking up going, I will believe, I will believe, I will believe. And I don't know what it was about because when I woke up out of it, I don't know what I was saying. I will believe after that. So I don't know if that was one of those encounters where I was in that dream state again, and I couldn't figure out exactly what was going on. And, maybe that was my first indoctrination and I don't know.
1: Mm -hmm. The other thing that comes to my mind as a question is after having such an experience, are you feeling a sense of, mm, how can I say this as perceiving the universe as being, uh, populated by individuals or are you sensing a connectedness among individuals like, Like I often think of us as cells in a large cosmic body that, you know, we may appear to be like a drop of water out of the ocean may appear to be separate, but when it returns to the ocean, it's one ocean. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, is there a feeling of separateness or connectedness when you're coming out of these states of awareness?
0: When I'm coming out of it, it's it's more like a separation to me Mm -hmm. when I'm in it it's it's almost like there's a connection. I keep wondering why do they keep putting me into this mode where I, I'm in these dark periods? What were they doing? What were they talking about? What were they saying to me that I don't remember consciously? But if it's in my subconscious, then I have all the, the facts that are in there that I need to get out. Um, Rich tried to have me hypnotized and I don't know how, how that went because uh i'm not good at being hypnotized but i'm thinking if if we are spiritual immortal beings and we do just move on from one physical to the next if these guys that are i'm having the encounter with if they're me spiritually
2: Mm -hmm. 24,000
0: or 52,000 years in the future or something. And they, and I see what I'm doing now is something important. And I came back in time to make sure I did what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what that is yet. Maybe I'm doing it tonight.
1: it, It may be a time travel as you suggest, but it also may be a now moment. In other words, oftentimes you hear, uh, people, you know, say that when they're in these altered states of consciousness, there is no time, that all time is simultaneous. So it isn't necessarily a future event. It might be a parallel universe that you're moving in and out of these different dimensions.
0: Yeah. I I, <clears throat> I had a déjà vu, I'm going to call it, um, and I... I was in a tree next to a barn and there was an entity across from me and the entity was not human, but I knew that I was not human as well, Or I, hmm. uh, and, but I had an affection for the, the entity standing in the tree with me. I don't know if it was female or male or whatever, but I had an affection for it and that's the feeling I had. Um, and I don't know if it was a deja vu or one of the dreams that I had. It was weird, but I I don't know if I had a glimpse into the future, and that's one of the events that the future me had, and I just got a glimpse of it. I don't know,
2: mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I've had
0: other deja vu's that have um really really tripped me out. It had nothing to do with entities and other stuff, but just I think we have the ability to turn on a transmitter and receiver in our brain and since it's the same brain in the future as it is in the past somehow we can actually connect to it and we get quick flashes of the future which gets stuffed away in our subconscious somewhere and then when we reach those points in times that's when all of a sudden it feels familiar because been transmitted back to us or we've grabbed a, a glimpse of the future um, I remember I was I was getting off an exit um, or getting on an exit to get onto the highway and I'm going around this steep curve and something said, watch out for the deer. I'm like, what deer? And I slowed down and boom, there was a deer. And he was standing in the road. Luckily, I slowed down and I could go around and you'd let him get out the way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you know, Greg Braden and Bruce Lipton, they talk about the field. And that the brain, rather than containing the thought, is actually more like a like an antenna tuning into thoughts that are in the field, and so it isn't that the thought is inside your brain, it's that the brain is acting like a television or a radio, it's picking up and receiving thoughts that are in the field
0: exactly exactly um, I want to try to i want to try to move on because I want to get through with all those pictures that I gave you. <laughs> uh, Phoenix Lights. Uh, Ted Koppel gave me the opportunity to do a, a story about the Phoenix Lights. And if anybody remembers that, there was this huge V-shaped craft that flew over Phoenix uh, back in the 90s. And uh, when that event took place, this was a three-month-old story. Ted Koppel gave me the opportunity to do Um, a story about that and he assigned Jayla Monica who was uh, a nightline producer to me so we could work on this and I called uh, Frances Emma Barwood who's the councilwoman who brought this up at a council meeting and she's telling me the story about how she was going into this open forum council meeting and she explains to her what an open forum council meeting is and she said in the open forum council meeting You can ask any question, and the council has to give you an answer within X amount of days. And she said as she's going in, Extra, the TV show, literally jumps out of the bushes and sticks a mic in her face and says, is the council going to investigate the lights that flew over Phoenix? She didn't know anything about this. But guess what her question was when she went into the council? She said, are we going to investigate the lights that flew over Phoenix? She said they went bonkers. Let it alone. Don't go there. You're opening a can of worms. You don't need to rattle that, that door. They didn't want to deal with it, but she kept pursuing it. And the next thing she knows, she's a cartoon, a political joke, the cartoon in the newspaper showing the Starship Enterprise flying in one of her ears, coming out the other, and weird stuff like that. And But she stuck with it. Anyway, she tells me this second story. She said that um, there was the uh, veteran cemetery. They love telling you a second story. And she said the council had voted that they would not build a road through the veteran cemetery. So she gets a call in the middle of the night, and it's from somebody who said, you need to get out to the cemetery. So her and a friend go out to the cemetery. And here's these dump trucks, bulldozers, they're getting ready to build this road that the council has said, no, you will not build the road. And first she thought, she said, I thought we could probably stop them, but then she realized that they could plow them under and nobody would ever know what happened to them. So they went and got help and were able to stop them. But then she said, the cemetery went from local control to federal control. And while it was under federal control, by the time it came back to local control, all this acreage was missing. And I think she said the mayor was a realtor or something like that. And this was prime land or know, it's OK. But. She said this is the kind of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that people don't get to see. Uh, who are not privy to what's going on in the workings of our political areas in, in our society. And most people wouldn't believe this kind of stuff, even when you tell them, hey, this is what's going on. Oh, I don't believe that, and they dismiss it. But it goes on all the time. And when it comes to Project Disclosure, um, well, the Phoenix Lights, I forgot. Let me finish that up because before we go into break. Um, Phoenix Lights got upstaged because after I started working on it, I told the host of the show, and he kind of mentioned it on Art Bell when I should have told him, don't say anything, and I didn't. So it was my fault. And the next thing I know, all of the radio print the tv all of everybody jumped on the story like it had happened that day and it's a three-month-old story that's when the executive producer tom patag came to me and said well we're not going to do it now and i said why because everybody else has done it and i'm thinking why when does that stop Nightline? but it got pulled so we didn't do it and when we come back from the break uh i'm going to pick up with project disclosure and hopefully I will be able to run through the rest of the stuff really quick so we can get to the last of the pictures and give you guys an idea of what kind of technologies are available to us that they knew about since way back. Okay. Um, did you want to Are take we a going thing?
1: to break now? Uh, yeah.
0: Well, we can go to break now.
1: I actually get a chance to say All right, everyone. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight, and our guest tonight is our sound engineer, Keith Morgan, and the show is called Personal Encounters of a Third Kind, and we will join you right after the break.
6: in the navigator bar or in the left hand column. Membership costs 1995 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. And if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe. To club 19.5 as well because we need all of you and when I say we need you you're the reason we're doing all this Hoagland over and out <laughs>
1: welcome back to the other side of midnight our guest tonight is Keith Morgan and the show is called personal encounters with a third kind so Keith take it
0: away okay we left off uh, I was talking about project disclosures our next thing because we just finished talking about uh, the Phoenix lights Um, now Project Disclosure, Stephen Greer is uh, a doctor who's uh, done a great, great job in trying to focus this whole thing uh, starting back in 2000, uh, it was 2000, May 9th, 2001. He had a, uh, a press conference at the National Press Club, and he has a coalition at that point in time, was like 450 people who... Had stories to tell about their knowledge of the government's uh, knowledge and interaction with extraterrestrials, and I was at that I was at that conference. Um, didn't make into the, the final cut on uh, Stephen Greer's uh, video, but uh, is because I, I I made a um, I, I kind of made a uh, sarcastic kind of thing that he took that I guess he figured it was directed at him and his people but it was directed at my colleagues in the news and um I didn't really get to finish everything I was going to say and I didn't get to tell them about the morgan curve or whatever but um he I guess he figured I was a plant or something in there never mind anyway uh project disclosure There were people who were telling their stories. Uh, Stephen Bassett had sent me video of uh, testimonies from people with Stephen Greer's uh, group. Uh, One of them was Robert Jacobs. And Robert Jacobs tells his story about how he was um, charged with the task of filming a rocket launch that was supposed to have a dummy warhead on it. And he had to take this, at that time, top secret lens up into this mountain, and this was one of those super lenses like they used to, to uh, film the shuttle and so forth when uh, at high altitudes. And he had to set it up and wait for the launch. And he said that this thing was so powerful. He said that I forgot how many miles away they were from from the actual launch site. But he said, when you look through the, the lens of this thing, all you could see was the gimbal on the rocket engine. It was that tight. And then he said the clouds came in and when they launched this thing, this they started filming and the camera and lens automatically started tracking the rocket. And it, they didn't have to worry about it, so it just started tracking. All they could see was, he said, a plume coming up, a trail coming up through the clouds, going up into the sky off in the distance. So then he said after the rocket had successfully launched, they packed everything up. They came back, turned the film in, and he thought that was the end of it. He says that he got called into a uh, – a meeting with one of his commanding officers. And he said there were some other guys in there in suits. He didn't know who they were. And his commanding officer said, were you guys screwing around up there? And he said, no, sir, what are you talking about? And he said, look at this. And now he's playing back the film that they shot. And he's really amazed at how well this camera was tracking and how close they were in on this uh, rocket as it's going up. And he said, this thing is, you know, it's going thousands of miles an hour up into the stratosphere. And he's, seen, he's, he's amazed at how crystal clear it is. But then he says, all of a sudden, he sees this typical saucer-shaped craft with the dome on it, zip into the picture, starts pacing with the rocket. It, like, it was effortless. It came in, started pacing with the rocket. It shoots a blue beam at it. It shoots a blue beam at the rocket. It moves around to the other side, zips around to the other side, shoots a blue beam at the rocket, zips around to the other side, shoots a blue beam at it, and then takes off uh, out of the frame, and the rocket tumbles – the little warhead tumbles out of space – from out of space. It just starts tumbling and boom. And his superior officer said, what do you make of that? And he said, well, it looks like you got a UFO. And he said, that's when the superior officer said, You're not to talk about this. You didn't see this, et cetera. He was just dumbfounded by what he saw. Because whatever zipped into the picture and started pacing with the rocket, he said that was technology nothing like he had seen uh, before. I think that was in the 60s. Anyway, <clears throat> if that was supposed to be a dummy warhead – why did this craft come into the picture and knock it out? Maybe it wasn't a dummy warhead. Maybe that was the lie. Maybe it had a live warhead on it and the craft came in to take it out because they were going to do something they knew they weren't or shouldn't be doing because I heard rumors that they were going to nuke the moon or something stupid like that. And if that was part of that project, where they were going to send a nuke to the moon maybe to the dark side and nuke the other side these guys knew that this was going to happen and they sent their craft in to knock it out but robert jacobs was just one of many who had stories like that at the national press club um there was uh having a brain fart of course on names there was john callahan he was a third ranking guy in the faa during the reagan administration there was um oh gosh clifford stone he was a part of crash retrieval and he's telling his story about how uh, they would go out retrieve the craft take precautions Um, the things they encountered, stuff like that. One of the things that I did um, when Ted Koppel gave me the opportunity to do Project Disclosure, he assigned uh, Richard Harris, another producer of Nightline to me. And the wild thing is that Richard Harris went to Northwestern University. And as I said earlier, I went to Northwestern High School. (laughs) I thought that was, okay, that's a big coincidence. And Richard Harris is telling me when we're talking. He said he he had this professor. He said this guy was weird. He came in talking about UFOs almost every day, talking about UFOs. And I said, "Oh yeah, um, what was his name?" His name was uh, J. Allen Hynek. <laughs> I fell out laughing. I said you had the father of the Close Encounters of the Third Kind <laughs> a professor. I said, okay, is, was Ted trying to be funny by signing him? But Richard and I knew each other because sometimes when Ted would, Ted would drop me off at my car after the show and the one night Richard was riding with us because Ted was taking him, to uh, drop him off, and we were talking about stuff and... Uh, Uh, So uh, Richard and I were pretty familiar with each other. But uh, I found that was really interesting. So one of the things that I did was I called John Callahan and talked to him on the phone. And he's telling me uh, about the Japan airline flying back over Alaska. It was a cargo plane. And the pilot radios the tower that he's being shadowed by some large craft and on radar the tower sees a return coming back but they can't make out what it is but as the pilots calling out it's above me it's below me it's to the left it's to the right it's a they see it in the exact position on radar now Callahan explains to me how radar actually looks at the return and can classify The return as oh, this must be a 747. Oh, this must be a 707. Oh, this must be a Cessna and it classifies it that way. But he said when you get something outside that criteria, it keeps trying to classify it and then it gives up and takes it off the radar and marks it as a weather anomaly. But every time this thing went behind the the, the plane. And came from up back out from behind it, the radar would start trying to classify it all over again. And this went on for 30 minutes. Now, this cargo plane is a 747. The pilot said he was plane was dwarfed by this thing. He said this thing was the size of two aircraft carriers in the sky. It looked like a walnut turned on its side with the rim going around the center. He said um, there was smaller craft coming and going from this thing. The tower tells him to make a a wide turn and make a 360-degree wide turn so he came back on the course to see if they could shake this thing. This thing stayed with them the whole 360 degrees of the turn. So after a while, this thing left. And I think the story is that it went and followed another plane or something. But then when, after they landed, Callahan's job was to go investigate this. What he did was he went and got the radar disk, which records the radar recording everything. He got the audio tapes of the conversation between the cockpit and the pilots. I mean, the, the pilots in the tower, and he synchronized them, played them back, and he videotaped the radar screen while also recording the audio on the videotape of the communications. He said he took this tape to the number one guy in the FAA, Admiral Ingen, because uh, he, was, he was the number third guy. He was the third-ranking guy in the FAA during the Reagan administration, And Ingen was the number one guy during the Reagan administration. He thought that Ingen was just going to look at this for a short period of time and dismiss the whole thing. But Ingen told his secretary, hold all my calls. And he sat there and watched the entire thing. Then he said, um, Callahan said, it was a few days or a week later. He can't remember exactly when. He said they had this huge meeting. There was three guys from Reagan's scientific staff, three guys from the FBI, three guys from the CIA, and a whole bunch of other people. They were scientists of some type, but he didn't know who they were. And they were all excited because they never had 30 minutes worth of UFO data on radar before. He said they had the printout from the 30 minutes of radar data. And he said, when you print out 30 minutes of radar data, he said, these boxes took up the whole wall and went to the ceiling. He had video, synchronized video. He had transcripts signed by the pilot, co-pilot, and the tower people. He said they went over all of this stuff, and at the end of the meeting, one of the guys from the CIA stood up and said, this incident never happened, this meeting never took place, and we're confiscating all of this. And they took everything, but... On his desk, he had the original videotape. He had the original transcripts. He had the original uh, one box of original uh, radar data printout. And when he retired, they packed all this stuff up and he took it home. And now he wanted to blow the whistle. And that's exactly what he did. So he he's telling me that story. And then remember I said they love telling you a second story. He says to me, you remember the when we moved from the old national radar system to the new national radar system? And I said, yeah, there was a big controversy about that. He said, yeah, it was so full of errors that it scared him. He didn't want to fly. But he said one day he was coming back on a flight from somewhere and he had this idea. Well, if we treat this like baseball stats, we can say, Oh, the system was 98% efficient today, or the system was 92% efficient today. He said it got all the way down into the seventies. It was so bad, but he said, this is what we told you guys, but you never caught on meeting. That's what they told the media and the media never challenged it or or questioned it or anything. They gave him a $10,000 bonus for coming up with that. Again, Stuff like that, people go. I don't believe that. It, this is the third-ranking guy in the FAA. Okay, he's telling me the story of what was going on. Uh, and this is the kind of stuff I said goes on behind the scenes, and people don't get privy to it. They, the the public is kept in the dark on a lot of stuff, and we need to know what's going on. Because it's our lives. A lot of it's our lives. When it, when it came down to flight, oh uh, was it, Pan, Pan Am Lockerbie flight, and they had the uh, bomb on board, and they they knew it was a bomb threat, but they didn't tell the passengers. They could have said, hey, we have a bomb threat. You fly at your own risk. Oh, no, it'll put the airlines out of business. No. You tell the passengers, let them make the decision whether to fly or not. And a lot of the people who will still have flown, they would have said, well, that ain't going to deter me. I'm going to fly. I got to get home or whatever. But you give them that choice. They took it away from them by not telling them they had a bomb threat. And that plane blew up and a lot of people were lost. But they didn't do that again. Did
1: they get sued? Did they get sued? They should
0: have been. I think, there, I, I think there were some lawsuits that came out of that. But the next time they had one, oh, they told people. They told people. We, we have a bomb threat. They got up and actually told them. And they may have had maybe a handful of people, maybe five or six people that said, I'm not going to fly today. There was no bomb that went off in the plane. Plane landed fine. But... The five people chose the option not to fly. And that was their prerogative. Right now, this is the same thing that's going on with this whole UAP, UFO stuff, right? Give us the choice to say, we want to know. You tell us. Don't be giving us redacted paperwork going, "Well, well, it's classified. No. Tell us what's going on. Uh, they, I guess they don't see this as, you know, treason against the against the American people because they don't need to know. They're going to panic. It's going to upset the apple cart that we've had control of all this time. They're going to want to know who these people are. They're going to want to know what the technology is. They're going to want this. But we, need, we have the right to know. Okay, so I'm coming to the bottom of the hour. <clears throat> I'm going to make sure I move on. So now let's talk about alternative energy. I stood in control room at ABC, watched a spot come through. It was going to one of our ABC affiliates in Ohio. And a guy named Stan Myers had come up with a way to convert water to hydrogen using very little current. And he's driving around in a dune buggy with a tank full of water. Now this is supposed to be impossible. It, It takes as much energy to tear the hydrogen and oxygen apart as what you get when you combine it back together. So you're, you're not really getting anything out of it, and that's the lie. Stan Myers was using high voltage and resonant frequency, and when you hit resonant frequency, stuff tears itself apart. And if anybody remembers the Ella Fitzgerald movie, I mean a, a commercial, where she sings and holds a note and it shatters the crystal glass, that's resonant frequency because she matched the frequency of the glass and it tore itself apart. And that's what Stan Myers was doing with his device. Stan Myers said he calculated he could drive from L.A. to New York on 22 gallons of water. Then the Pentagon came to him, asked him if he could build a tank that would run on gas or water. That's what the number 25 is. If you click on Keith 2 in the fast links, it will take you to the second page of images under the other side of midnight um, tonight's show. And you'll see Stan Myers' water-powered car. Now, Stan Myers was a tinkerer, and he, he loved building things. His twin brother who was a real engineer who stopped the meltdown of the nuclear power plant and some other stuff, from what I understand. Don't have the whole story. But he knows what he's doing. When Stan Myers had the Pentagon come to him, they – They asked him if he could build a tank to run on gas or water, and he set up a $70 million contract to do that with them. Then he wanted the water to come right up to the cylinder before getting converted. He did it. The device replaced your spark plug, and he said it would cost $1,500 to retrofit your car to run on water. You'd pay $1,500 to convert your car to run on water, wouldn't you? Because then you can – yeah. You could collect water in a barrel and have enough water to – Drive for the rest of the year. (laughs) Wow, This is the kind of technology that was there. And I watched this spot and I'm going, we're in an energy crisis. Why isn't this story a national story? Why is it just this local story going to Ohio? Because you keep it compartmentalized. If you get too many people looking at this, you're going to have the curious trying to duplicate it. And the more people you have duplicating it, guess what? You're going to have
1: money they make (laughs) somebody's
0: somebody's going to improve on it, make it better. It's going to get marketed and the oil companies are going to be SOL. And what can they do? But they don't want that to happen. That messes up the economy. It throws off our the way things are balanced. Oil would become useless at that point, except for plastics and maybe paving roads or whatever. But, hey, they didn't want it. And then May 9th, 2001, while I was at the National Press Club at uh, Stephen Greer's uh, Project Disclosure, a guy tells me about Stan Myers. He was at a restaurant eating, meeting with some investors. He jumps up, grabs his throat, said they poisoned me. Ran out of the restaurant, got halfway down the street, and dropped dead. That's his story. And but his twin brother is supposed to be continuing his work, but we haven't heard anything. Then there's then there's Stan, uh, I mean Troy Reed. He came through on a spot going out to an affiliate in Ohio. He came up with the Reed magnetic motor. That's number 26, uh, 27, 28, and 29. And if you go down through that 26, you see Troy Reed on the right in his plaid shirt, and that's his son on the left side of the reed magnetic motor. And this thing, you crank this sucker up, it picks up speed, gets to a speed that it wants to run at, and it just keeps running, and it turns this generator on the table that's behind, um, mounted on the table behind the, the uh, generator that Troy's standing on the side of, and it generates electricity. Enough to run his drill, vacuum cleaner, Christmas tree lights, etc. And it just keeps running. It just keeps running off of magnetic repulsion and a feedback loop that goes down off of the generator to a 12-volt battery charger that runs a little motor in the back to keep this thing going. But the four silver cylinders, or I'm um, excuse me, gold cylinders, at the top of this thing, because this thing looks like something out of the 1800s, you know, back to the future. <laughs> whatever. And they have springs in them. And the two flywheels that you see on the left and right, they turn the crankshaft that moves the rods up and down to push these pistons up into those cylinders. And on one stroke, the rod in the cylinder gets pushed up and locks into place. On the next stroke, that rod comes up, it pushes that rod in the cylinder again, it releases it, and the spring pushes down, pushing on that rod, pushing the magnets as they approach each other to the other side so that they then repulse and, and go in one direction, sling on. And this thing is just and it starts running and it picks up speed and it works. But then he refined it from this 10 foot tall wooden device down to this 18 inch diameter device that looked like a big motor. And he he went from mechanical repulsors to induction coils, puts out more energy than his big 10 foot tall wooden device and it is more efficient and he can tune this thing perfectly and it runs. And picture number uh, 27, is me standing next to it because Richard and I went out to visit Troy and I got to meet Troy and his son. And then I found out that who Troy's cousin was because I got to meet him because we, uh, Hoagland and I got picked up at the airport in a limousine and I'm like a limousine. Who sent us a limousine? And he turns out that he is the cousin of Dennis Weaver. And for you younger generation don't know who Dennis Weaver is There was a show called Gunsmoke and he played um, oh gosh Chester on Gunsmoke before Festus came along and he also played McLeod on the series McLeod and um, he was actually financing his cousin Troy with all his inventions Troy was an inventing fool. I'm going to have to pick this up after the break. You're on the other side of midnight, and you're listening to me, Keith Morgan, and Canthea, and uh, right now we are about to go into break, and when we come back, I will pick up where I left off, and hopefully you guys are enjoying me talking about this stuff because I've got a lot of stuff in my head after working with ABC all that time. And we'll be back.
4: Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com
7: Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. 8 cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com.
1: And welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, Tonight, we've got a show called Personal Encounters with a Third Kind. And Keith Morgan, our sound engineer, is sharing his broad spectrum of experience. And he's now into energy and energy devices. So, Keith, I'm turning it back to you.
0: Okay. So, we're talking about... um, Last thing I was talking about was uh, Troy Reed and the Reed magnetic motor, which we were looking at pictures twenty-seven to twenty-nine. And like I was saying, Troy is a invent. And he's an inventing, inventing fool. He had all kinds of stuff um, that just i was like, how did you come up with this stuff? If you go to um, picture twenty-eight and you'll see me standing next to what he calls the Surge. Now, the Surge is an electric car. It did have a gas engine in it, but he took out the gas engine, put in an electric motor, uh, put in some electric controllers and so forth, and he got this electric car. Thing is, is that if you look at that picture, you'll see a little trailer. This is a motorcycle sidecar on a two-wheel trailer being towed behind the car. What that is, is a generator, and it was an aircraft starter generator, and it puts out high current and low voltage, and he said he was going to modify it so it could put out high voltage and low current, and all the naysayers were going, oh, you can't do that. That's impossible. You can't do that, but he pulled it off. He then mounted this uh, aircraft starter generator in this sidecar on these two wheels, Use a motorcycle uh, chain to connect the generator to the axle so that when he's pulling this behind the car, it's now turning the generator using the power from the wheels on the – under the sidecar. And when he's at 35, 40 miles an hour, somewhere around there, it's generating enough electricity to charge the batteries and run the motor. So when you're doing like highway speeds, this thing is continuously running the motor and charging, keeping the batteries charged. And that was a concept that was another one of those, oh, you can't do that. You're violating this law and that law of thermodynamics. But he did it. And picture 29, you see Dennis Weaver and Richard Hoagland. And Troy was gonna he he was gonna uh, perfect this car and richard suggested to him that he incorporate the generator inside the car and and then work from there and um, me i should have spoke up and i should have said no just batten down the hatches on everything make sure all the electrical connections are good make sure all of the other nuts and bolts are tightened down this thing can do a long journey and then you drive this from here to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue with an ultimatum to the president saying car manufacturers to beat this because this is the longest electric car ever drive that I'm doing and then you mothball it after you've driven from Oklahoma to DC and then you drive all the way back to California And then from California, you drive back to Oklahoma. Once you've done that, of course, you alert the Guinness Book of World Records first and have them track you as you do this. You're making the longest electric car drive without ever recharging. And once you pull that off, then I think we've got something going. Then you can incorporate the motor inside the car. But he, He went with Richard's suggestion because I didn't open my mouth like I should have and said, hey, now drive it as it is, get it to where it's going, get some backing and put this in the Smithsonian and build a new one with the generator inside the car. And I didn't say anything because I'm always in the background and I should have spoke up because I don't make waves until it's time to make waves. And I think it's now time to make waves. So, anyway, moving on, we have Denny Klein in Clearwater, Florida. Denny Klein has a, a, an electrolysis process just like Stan Myers does, and it separates the hydrogen and oxygen, and he makes what's called Brown's gas, HHO. They've known about Brown's gas since the 40s, late 40s, early 50s, somewhere around there, maybe a little bit before. It's just hydrogen and oxygen but it's a serious gas. It will cut through anything, tungsten, titanium, steel, you name it, it it'll match the temperature, whatever it's cutting through and it'll cut through it. So he was, his patent is for his technique, but he uses it like acetylene. He, one day he says, let me try it in my car. So he rigs his car to run on the gas. He drove 100 miles on four ounces of water. I didn't say four gallons. I said four ounces of water. That's
1: amazing. That's
2: awesome.
0: And that kind of technology definitely would have put the car companies out of business. I mean, not the car companies, but the gas companies out of business. It would have made the car companies have to take a different turn and go a different direction. And they didn't want to do that. And people say, oh, the gas companies and the car companies, they're not in bed with each other. Yeah, they are. Because they're dependent on each other. They, the car companies need the 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 gas from the oil companies and the oil companies need the, the money from the car companies to keep doing what they're doing. Yeah, they're, they're all playing this game. I remember Ted was dropping me off at my car one night and I said, Ted, I think the cigarette companies have a conspiracy going, Keith, do you really think the tobacco industry has a conspiracy going? And I'm thinking, yeah, because there's people blowing the whistle on them and nobody's paying the peons any attention. And then when the guy at the top blew the whistle, oh, now it's a story. I'm sitting there going, why don't you listen to the peons? The people who do this stuff every day, the average Joe, and he's trying to tell you, Hey, these guys are doing something they shouldn't be doing, but you're not giving them the time of day and That's what irritated me uh, when when I would do the presidential elections and i they'd fly me up to Manchester to do unilateral um a guy came in one day to the t v station that we were doing the unilateral out of, and he's saying yeah i'm i'm on the I'm on the roster for President of the United States." And nobody knew who this guy was, but he was on the roster. And I asked Tom Batag, I said, are are we going to give him any time? And he said, oh, he doesn't want to be president. He he just wants to make a statement. I'm like, okay, but equal time, equal whatever is supposed to be what our motto is supposed to be. But it was stuff like that that just drove me crazy because – I could see what was going on, but there's nothing I could do because I'm behind the scenes and I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. So I did. Um, so Denny Klein drove 100 miles or four ounces of water. And then there's Denny um, John Kansas. Now John Kansas is picture number 31 and 32. 32 was actually John, Kansas, but above is what he discovered. Now, what he really discovered, and there's a 60 minutes piece on this if you want to go look it up. He woke up in the middle of the night with an idea for curing cancer, and the idea was you float nanoparticles of metal in the bodies so that are attract and attach to the cancer cell. Then you hit the body with a radio frequency heating up the metal, killing the cancer cell. And the doctors in the 60 Minutes piece are going, why didn't we think of this before? Here's the rat's tumor before the treatment. Here's the rat's tumor after the treatment. And it's clearly killing the tumor leaving the healthy tissue alone. But they didn't talk about the other thing he discovered. A friend of his came to him and said, you think this will work with desalinization? So he takes a test tube of salt water. He puts it in front of the radio beam. Sees these gases coming up out of the tube, takes a lighter, lights the gases, and now he's got a flame of almost 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit coming up out this test tube. Then I don't know if it was dumb luck or he figured it out, but he took a paper towel and he put it in the test tube with the salt water. All he had to do was turn on the beam and it ignited all by itself with no external ignition. You turn it off, it stops. You turn it on, it starts. But the
1: What's causing it to ignite?
0: Some chemical reaction with whatever's in the paper towel.
1: I mean, because i mean you know we're in the kitchen we're using water and paper towels all the time they're not just spontaneous but it's, it's so the, what's happening
0: it's the radio frequency that's hitting the salt water uh, now, remember it was giving off the gases and then he uh, would take a lighter and light he would light that the, the uh, gases coming up out of the test tube but once you put the paper towel in there ever it was the paper towel with the catalyst to start the ignition process and the amazing thing is the paper towel never burned but it started no. the catalyst – no, it's right. It did. I <laughs>
1: know. That doesn't make sense. I know.
0: Tell me about it. What kind of technology is that? The paper towel never burned, but it started the catalyst to give us that 3,000-degree flame. And I'm going, we could take this simple technology, upscale it, and retrofit every coal-powered power plant and every nuclear power plant in the world because what are we doing? We're burning coal to boil water to make steam to turn turbines. What are we doing with nuclear reactors? We're boiling water to make steam to turn turbines. And at 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, you could get water to boil almost instantaneously. And I'm going, most of the power plants are sitting next to water. And if it's not salt water, you bring in a trainload of salt, you make your salt water fuel, and you get your salt water f- flame, and you boil your water. And when you boil, you, when you're using those gases coming out of there, You don't get carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, and all these other pollutants. You get mainly water vapor, much cleaner, much safer. And and I'm going, if Fukushima had been running on this technology, salt water, if the uh, tsunami had hit it, it would have just been salt water going back into salt water. It would have been no damage no explosions, no um, no radiation releases, none of that. Why can't we use clean energy like this? Why do we have to use dirty energy like nuclear? Yeah. Please, this is technology that they didn't wanna to touch. Again, he's violating this law and that law of energy conservation. No, he's not. He's using a small amount of energy to tap into a larger source and that's all he's doing. You do that with an atomic bomb, and, oh, everything's fine. You can't do that unless you are nuclear. No, we don't live in a nuclear universe. We live in an electromagnetic universe. And if you can do it on a nuclear scale, you can do it on an electromagnetic scale. So stop telling this this lie. Let's get off of this. Move on. Now, here's a story. I came in early to work one day, and GM had two fuel cell vehicles outside of ABC. And I'm talking to the guy from GM, because Head of the Curve is doing a spot about these uh, fuel cell vehicles. And I said, so what did you guys do to these things? Oh, we took out the engine. We dropped in an electric motor, put in a 97-kilowatt fuel cell and a tank to hold the hydrogen. I looked at him. I said, do you know about Stan Myers? Yeah. Denny Klein? Yeah. John Kansas? Oh, well, that name doesn't strike a bell. The guy woke up in the middle of the night with an idea for curing cancer. Oh, yeah, the guy burns salt water with radio frequencies. Yeah, I know all about them." I looked at him and I said, well, if you know about them, that means GM knows about them. If GM knows about them, how come this thing's running on hydrogen instead of water? Oh, conspiracy theorists. I said, no, every word that comes out of my mouth is a fact. Oh, well, you know, people come to us with these ideas and concepts, and it takes time to implement them. I said, how hard is it to get a, get a bunch of brains together and go, let's make this work? And it was a few days or a week later, number 33, this Japanese company introduced their fuel cell car. You drive at 50 miles an hour for one hour on a liter of water. You pour the water into your electrolysis device. The hydrogen goes to the fuel cell, and off you go. And I'm like, wasn't this what I was telling the idiot from GM? It's not rocket science. They don't want to do it never wanted to do it. We could have been running on water a long time ago, but then you got people like this. One lady I was telling, we should be running on water. We should be pumping water out of the ocean for drinking irrigation and fuel. And she says, well, what if we use up all the water in the ocean? I said, what did I tell you you get when you burn hydrogen? You get water vapor. No carbon dioxide. No carbon monoxide. None of these pollutants. You get water vapor. It's clouds. It's going to rain back down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you get these environmentalists going, yeah, well, see, if you get these fuel cell vehicles dripping water everywhere, it's going to add to the global warming. I'm like, what? How do? You, what's it easier, getting carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, and other pollutants out of smoke, or capturing some water vapor and running it through a coil to cool it down, condense it back into water vapor, and putting it back into the system? Which is harder? No, it's, come on. And even if you drove every man, woman, and child on the face of the planet drove 100 miles a day on four ounces of water, it would still not be equivalent to the amount of water that rains down in one area, like D.C. in an hour with a good downpour. Okay, in no way. But this is the kind of stuff that they want to keep feeding to everybody. There's more evaporation from the ocean, from the sun every day than it would be from what we would be putting into the air with fuel cell vehicles. But this is the crap they've been handing us the whole time. Okay, moving on because we're like 10 minutes out from the end of show. Okay, so um, Ted Koppel did a book about called Lights Out, and hopefully I can get him on the show if you and I host it, and maybe he'll say okay, because he, he said I drove him crazy with the talk about Hoagland. <laughs> but um, he, what he's talking about in Lights Out is uh, EMP, a, an electromagnetic pulse that would uh, virtually lend, uh, render our electrical grid null and void. Uh, even a good solar flare, a massive solar flare, would knock out our electric grid. Uh, but there's technology standing in the wind's wings to actually change that. Um, we've got solid-state batteries, and we've got uh, the Bloom Box, and we've got uh, a whole bunch of other things that could probably change the way we generate electricity. It's a centralized system that we have now. We have the power plant, and we've got these long transmission lines to send the power down the lines. It's centralized. That's why somebody could hack the the, the power plant and knock part of the grid down, or most of the grid, or really do some damage, knock the whole entire grid out. But technological developments like the, the Bloom Box, that would make electricity a distributed principle instead of a centralized principle. It, it would be a, You'd be able to take the Bloom Box and put them at substations in neighborhoods, eliminating the long distance transmission lines. You feed these boxes any kind of gas, butane, methane, propane, hydrogen, natural gas. You just feed them a gas, you feed them air, and you get electricity out. And 60 Minutes did a piece about the bloom box. And in the 60 Minutes piece, Leslie Stahl's interviewing the CEO of eBay, and he's showing her their five boxes they have out on the concrete slabs. And these things he says, are producing 15% of the campus electricity, but based on how much they're putting out and what we're using, they're actually putting out five times more than we're actually using. In the nine months that we've had these in place, we've saved over $100,000. She called them three months later, and he says, yeah, we have saved over $200,000 in one year because they're using methane, which is landfill gas. Cow poop puts out, every, all poop puts out methane and you just collect that gas you know even a, even a compost pile puts out methane and you take that methane use it to power your bloom box or you could take solar panels do conversion on water do electrolysis on water and use the hydrogen to run your bloom box so there's multiple ways of running this box and The box would be the size of your air conditioning condenser that's outside right now, and it would power your home, and you'd feed it. Most houses have natural gas, feed it natural gas, and if you don't have natural gas, you could bring in the tank of uh, propane, run it that way, or you could have uh, any other fuel. Anyway, those are some of the technologies that are standing on the door to really do some stuff here. I want to talk about. Okay, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, the last pictures in my sequence. You're looking at Gobekli Tepe in 34, 35, and 36. This was discovered back in 1994. When they dug it up, they found all of this stonework and dated it to 12,000 years ago when we were supposed to be hunter-gatherers. Who pulled this off? And they said, well, they buried it for some reason. These are temples. They're not temples. I think those are celestial landing sites, and these pillars were supports for when the craft would set down on them, and then the people would come out from underneath. But what buried them? Why did they bury them? I think the flood that really took place, which was a huge tsunami, not raining for 40 days and 40 nights. The 40 days and 40 nights came after the tsunami, which was so huge they could see it from space encompassing the planet, took place. It buried this. It buried Easter Island, the statues on Easter Island, up to the to their necks. Why do you build a statue that big and then bury it up to its, necks, its neck? It buried the, the pyramids in Bosnia and in – Tewatewakon, all of this stuff had to be unearthed, okay? Because this stuff got buried in the original flood. And when you get a tsunami moving, that that huge moving through the atmosphere, you get a lot of evaporation. And then it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. So the story isn't quite right. That's an alternate history that we're dealing with here. 37 and 38, they found these little delta wing aircraft models in tombs. And the scientists are going, oh, those are representations of insects. No, they're delta wing aircraft. When I showed these to my son, he was like three years old. He said, those are airplanes. Three-year-old knows the airplane when he sees it. You got a wheel, you got an engine underneath, you got a pilot sitting up in the front on 37. And when do you have an insect with a vertical tail fin? That's not what these are, okay? These are not insects. They are exactly what we're looking at, and they would probably be built by the Anunnaki. So moving on, let's go to Japan, underwater pyramid. They're saying, oh, this is a natural formation. You've got parallel lines that are just too sharp and too precise to be that. Then when you go to the top of this thing, picture 41, that's at the top how do you get curves like that 42 is me outlining the top that's not natural how do you sit and go that's natural no you're in denial then let's get to 43 43 was chariot to the gods too eric von dannegan who's standing there duplicated the relief on the wall in Addis Ababa, I think it is, in Egypt. And they said, this is a light bulb. So he duplicated it, put a high voltage in it. And when I saw that thing live, that electron beam, you normally can't see it in a vacuum tube, but this is not a vacuum. It's got gas in it. I don't know which gas or if it's just air. But when he turned that thing on, that electron beam serpentined over to the hands. When it struck the hands, it straightened up and ionized the air, and then the air glowed like a neon light. And at that moment, I felt like I personally put that image on that wall myself, okay? Because if I was going to draw what I had just seen, that's what I would have drawn. So the Egyptians had the light bulb. They probably had batteries too, but... That was the glass battery. This is a a new technology that we're about to get. And then uh, picture 45, that is an Inca uh, building, and it was built like an observatory. So that's what I'm calling is the Cancun Inca Observatory. Who built that? How did they build it? Why did they build it? The history of this planet is not what we think it is. And if you read the Lost Book of Inky, it's not the tra- it's a trusted translation of the 14 tablets, which Zachariah Stitchin sold many books on, because I asked him a question about the, the Anunnaki or a question about the, when's Nibiru coming back or something like that. And he said, read the book, read the book. Which book? You got five, six books out. Which one's got my answer in it? then just before he passed on, he put out the right book, which is the Lost Book of Inky. When I read that, everything unfolded. Okay, so we're coming to the end of the show. And it's been fun talking to you guys. And hopefully we'll get to do this again because there's still a lot of stuff in my head. But uh, you're on the other side of midnight. Uh, The show is uh, Encounters of the Third Kind or (laughs) something close to that. And Conthea has been the host. (laughs) So uh, it's been great talking to you guys. Have a good night and uh, we'll see you on the other side.